compels me. What the fuck's the matter with these cunts? What's the matter with them? They must be on some fucking mega ego trip, these guys. We got horses and bloody ducks. The whole part of being a rock star is being a rock star. And what the rock stars do, you get a limo, you get a legend, you got people running around licking your ass. I get nicknamed Nibby. I looked at Bill Wood and he had this big long beard. And I said, you look like a pen nib. Stung. Hello, all my zoopers. Very strange. And, and geese in particular had all sorts of weird dreams and weird thoughts. And it might have been the acid alone. Hello, hello. What's up? Welcome to Sabbath Bloody Podcast. My name is Rye, and I'll be the voice inside your head here for the next little bit. So, you found the show. You're very welcome here as we dive in, into the deep, into the void, behind the wall of sleep, fucking on through heaven and hell. Well, maybe not that far. See how I do with the classics here first. A little black brew here in honor of our subjects at hand. To a stellar career, lads. I pour you quality black Irish stout. It shall remain unnamed at this point. Unless they want to sponsor the show. Then I'll run their ads, piss all you off. Hey, they do sponsor everything else in my town, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility, that's for sure. Okay, while this bad boy settles down, let's get into it. We're talking Black Sabbath, an unauthorized biography of sorts, a sabography, if you will, running through the albums and the history of the band, 50 years, woo, <laughs> cheers to that. Ah. Now then, I'm sure to get some super fans, some fact checkers coming through the show here, some true super knots, picking apart my Sabbath knowledge, so I'll just say off the top. There is bound to be a lot of slip-ups on my part. This is the first podcast I've ever done. This is me, the first time I'm talking into a fucking mic and listening to myself. I'm not an expert by any means. Wanted to learn a bit more about them myself, really. So leave me an iTunes review. Let me know how I can make this experience better for you. For you, the masses. Because my ultimate dream job has always been to work for VH1, you know? Behind the music. I guess it would be Netflix at this point, but... Just doing deep dive rock and country artists documentaries, going through their old footage. I'm a, I'm a video editor, so I just fucking love that shit. I'll try my best to be thorough here. And at the same time, I'll try to make things a little entertaining. I'll throw in some little bits and we'll keep it loose. I'll try to keep the show as loose as possible. And I know there'll be some real diehard Dio fans out there. I've heard of you guys. I've been warned. I know you'll chime in. You'll be like... Oh, he doesn't even know any songs off of the mob rules. Well, yeah, I don't. So that's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing this, guys. Because outside of the first five albums or so, I'm pretty much going in cold, going in blind. But that's what the show is for me, at least. It's a chance to wise up to the wicked ways of Sabbath. All Sabbath. I'll warn you now, too, I'm not looking to get locked into a weekly deal or anything. If you're looking for a weekly dose to get you through your commute or whatever, this pod may not be that for you. Just when I get some free time, I'll fire up an album, rock out, give my impressions, chat a bit here, and dive into some context for the tracks. Maybe you'll learn some new facts, or maybe you'll teach me some that I miss, you know? But let's have fun with this, shall we? Black Sabbath, they're sort of a gateway into heavy music for a lot of people. That bridge from catchy classic rock into more doomy evil shit, right? 
Well, to me, it was a starting point to pretty much all music, right from the get-go, thanks to my dad. My earliest Sabbath memories are really my earliest memories, period. I mean, I'm only in my 30s now, but they've always been there, you know? Like, literally, they've always been there. There's always been a Black Sabbath up until last year, I guess. And so Master of Reality, that was like the first one. That was like the first cassette tape I called my own. Well after its release, of course. But I loaded that bad boy into my Walkman. Black cassette with a big purple WB Warner Brothers logo on it. And I actually remember watching Looney Tunes as a kid, too, and making the connection. Hey, that's the Scary Halloween Band's logo. My first real exposure to Sabbath was earlier than the Master Cassette, even. I remember digging through my parents' records, loads of country and folk stuff. Amongst the endless Gordon Lightfoot and Joni Mitchell albums, my parents had. I'm from Canada originally, if you can't tell. I was drawn to my dad's old pressing of Paranoid. That wacky-ass cover, dude running through the forest with a cape, tripping out on something. It was so kinetic and wild, you know? My parents had this turntable. I don't think it was hooked to any speakers or anything. I couldn't figure out how to activate them. But I still figured out how to load it up, and I used to just spin the Paranoid record around. That Vertigo label on it. And it would go all trippy and hypnotize you as it spins. So that was my jam. Just spinning that fucker around and around and getting, getting brainwashed. It must have sunk in somewhere there. And so my dad saw me messing about, and he was cool enough to hook in the headphones, throw them on me, and then, Generals gathered in the masses. It was over, man. And those headphones were old as fuck, too. Probably older than the album. They were these black leather deals. How fucking metal is that? Fucking leather headphones. You could adjust the volume of each channel left and right. If you know anything about early Sabbath and 70s rock in general, they're all about like panning the instruments, tripping it out. And so with Sabbath, certain tracks, I was able to like isolate the bass line or just listen to Geezer up front or just listen to Bill. That was pretty fucking cool. I mean, especially when I picked up a bass later on, I could kind of like jam along with it a little easier than some of the other albums. And also... Every band I really got into in high school and such, when I was really a metalhead, they were all into Sabbath. Faith No More, Metallica, Slayer, COC, they all covered Sabbath. Even the rap I liked back then, Busta Rhymes, he had a track with Ozzy, rapping over Iron Man. So that's my induction story out of the way. Sabbath never saved my life or anything, but they've always been part of it. So let's get to it. Those lovable brummy lads that sing about the goddamn devil. I don't know if I'll go album by album, year by year, or just do eras like early Aussie, Dio, reunion era Aussie. I figured what I'll do for this episode is just cut my teeth, you know, get things rolling, cover some pre-Sabbath events, set up the main players, pretty much everything leading up to that aha moment, the self-titled song, from the self-titled debut, self-titled band, you know what's coming. But I got a few bullet points written down to keep myself on track here. Also, I'm going to try to stay away from just reading out Wikipedia pages or fluff pieces on the show. I'm going to assume you folks aren't interested in hearing that shit read verbatim. You can go read it yourself. You don't have to type into a fucking search engine, Black Sabbath, and read the, the fucking wiki. But I got, like, Tony's book here, and I've got another book that I'm reading that's uh, called Rat Salad and kind of covers the early years. And, uh, like, I'll just kind of draw from the books because at least they're kind of curated a bit more. Um, I'll, I'll still say where they're from if it seems like it might be bullshit or whatever, because there's a lot of bullshit out there. And I'm still going to use the internet, because, I mean, there's still some articles out there that are cool, unique, 
especially more recent stuff where they've been interviewed in retrospect of their career and all that kind of stuff. And also, I mean, you'll know when I'm reading because my reading out loud skills are absolute garbage. So, okay. So it's 2018 when I'm recording this. And last year, around this time even, the official end of Black Sabbath occurred. A final concert. So where did it all begin? Same place as the end. Birmingham, England. The first member to slip out into the world. He also happens to be the only consistent member throughout the years. Frank Anthony Iommi. He's of Italian ancestry. The Tony didn't tip you off there. His grandparents started an ice cream business in the UK. Living the dream. Iommi's ice. And little Tony grew up living above their operations. So that's like what? Like the best childhood ever? I mean, living in an ice cream factory? Fuck. But... It wasn't your typical beach town ice cream parlor. This was in industrial Birmingham. Noggy old England, right? Proper party. You fucking tosser. <laughs> I know, my brummy's my brummy's shit. I got the real deal here for you though. This is Tony speaking on the old days in Birmingham. Let me just cue it up here. I think a lot really from where we came from is 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 the background of of, of our music. Um but the industrial side of it. And being brought up around, you know, gang infested and not particularly very nice. And I think our thing was we wanted to get out, but you're trapped, really. And I think music was the way for us to be able to get out. Even Tony doesn't really do a great brummy. He sounds quite posh to me there. But I'm a Canadian who lives in Ireland, so what the fuck do I know, right? You all know the infamous sheet metal accident by now. And if not, I got it here for you to listen to, so... Well, the accident happened <clears throat> before uh, Black Sabbath, really. I worked in a sheet metal factory, and I did welding. And um, so somebody used to cut the metal and then send it down to me, and I'd weld it. And the one day this person didn't come in, and so they put me on the machine, and I'd never worked this machine ever. And the thing came down on my hand, and as I pulled my hand back, it just took the ends of the fingers off. It made me invent a, a way of playing uh, because I had to make these caps for my fingers. I went to the hospital and they said, you might as well give up, basically. And I, I couldn't accept that. I thought, well, there must be a way. And uh, so I made some tips myself out of a, a fairly liquid bottle. So I melted it down into a ball, got a hot soldering iron and made a hole in it until it fit on the finger. Um, and then just sat there forever, just rubbing it down to make a shape of a finger. And then I had to find something that I could touch the string with that would bend the strings. And, and so I tried different materials, and at the end of the day, I came up with a, a leather that would grip the string. The fingertips weren't the first major accident that shaped Tony's style. When he was really young, he got in a scrap with some kids at the schoolyard or some shit. Actually, it was a kid chasing him around with a spider or something like that. And Tony fell flat on his face, splitting his upper lip open. And it must have been something fierce because he was then dubbed Scarface by the other kids. And so later he grew his trademark stash. He grew that out to cover up Scar. But before he could grow that bad boy out, he decided to bulk up, lift weights, take karate, learn how to defend himself from the bullies. And it worked. But then once he got all jacked up, he became quite the prick himself. There are lots of reports of Tony being a real piece of shit throughout the years. I mean, you can just ask Lita Ford, his ex. She'll tell you some dirt. But in his book, he talks about both his parents having hot tempers and lots of abuse going on in the house, so it must stem from that. 
I guess after they moved away from the magical ice cream land that Grandpa Iomi ran, they moved into a more rundown part of the Brums. Loads of gangs around. Tony makes it sound like it was the goddamn warriors. This is the 50s and 60s in war-torn England. I mean, lots of trouble around. What am I building to here with this neighborhood garbage? Well, there's a very early crossover here between future band members. Enter a young John Michael Osborne. Sounds like a serial killer, right? Well, all the signs were there. Little Johnny was the one to soon be known the world around as Ozzy fucking Osborne. Born in 1948 as well, but in December, so he's a full year junior to Tony. They both went to Birchfield Road Secondary School. John was dyslexic, and back then, they would basically write you off as a full-on mental if you had any kind of learning disability. So he embraced it fully. Crazy train, baby, all aboard. He went full-on. Instead of hitting the gym and becoming Iron Man like Tony Boy over there, he went batshit crazy to counter the teasing that he received. So you got disfigured bully Tony Iommi. You got the nutter kid John Osborne. Quite the band we're building here, right? Now let's bring in the rhythm section, shall we? Also born in 48, the now black sheep of the original lineup, the estranged Mr. William Thomas Ward. Bill. Bill definitely feels like more of a musical loner, even as a kid. Listening to a lot of American jazz on his parents' 45s and getting into playing music a lot younger than the others. We get to some good, weird, wild shit down the road with old Nibby. Don't you worry. This is just the beginning. So he was in various bands, Bill. As in every town, drummers are in high demand. Most notably, he fronted a band called The Rest, in which he drummed and also was lead singer for a minute. He soon met Iomi on the scene who had by this point mastered his new fingers and he was back on track musically. So Tony joins Bill's band, The Rest, in late 66. I got a dog's ear over here in my Iomi book. There isn't much out there on The Rest, but, uh, like, there's no music or anything, but it's the first meeting of any of the members, so it deserves some time here. And I'll read a little excerpt here from Iron Man, Tony's book, if you bear with me a minute. After chopping my fingers off, it took at least six months for the worst of the pain to wear off and get going again. So the rest was his first band after the accident. This was around 1966 or 67. We had Bill Ward on drums, Vic Radford on guitar, and Michael Puntney on bass. Singer Chris Smith came later because Bill used to sing in the early days of the rest. At the time, we had no money. Bill used to go around picking up all these bits of drumsticks that the drummers of other bands had played with and broken. He couldn't afford to buy new ones, so he used to play with half sticks. Vic Radford also chopped his fingers off. I think he caught his middle finger in a door and chopped his... So yeah, <clears throat> this, this is kind of crazy, right? Two guitarists in the same band with less than 20 fingers between them. Full fingers, at least. That's got to be first. But it kind of gives this cool Island of Misfits Toys kind of vibe to Birmingham, doesn't it? All these characters in the music scene, like everyone's drawn to playing because they want out. And they're all beat up and hooked on smack and missing limbs, stealing shit. So the rest soon dissolves. And along with the singer Chris Smith, Tony and Bill move to a band called Mythology. And they relocate from Birmingham up to northern England, Carlisle to be specific, where they all become flatmates. And it's like their first time away from their parents, so they go fucking buck wild. Tony grows his hair out. Bill stops showering. Tony smokes some weed. Bill smokes banana peels. <laughs> that's that's my note here. I just have Bill smokes banana peels. I don't know what that was about. I can't remember. I think he used to like 
smoke banana peels. Anyway, we got one more key member to bring in still. So mythology is doing all right. They got their steady gig up in the north. But back in Birmingham, on the other side of Austin, in the more posh block apparently, you got my pick for favorite member. Terrence Michael Joseph Butler. Born to be an accountant. Apparently, that's where he was heading anyway. But your man has better ideas once he gets old enough to control his trajectory. Starts playing some bands. He's a guitarist. So Now, it always cracks me up how he simplifies things in interviews. He, he doesn't take it all too seriously, especially when it comes to song titles and lyrics. And if you don't know, he's actually the primary lyric writer for the band, the lyricist, if you will. And as a youth, he was a bit of a hippie type. So Tony says he used to wear flowery moo-moos and hemp pants. But was more of a Manson family style hippie, you know, long hair, LSD, but into the dark shit, like the occult. And he likes to play with those themes in his lyrics too, obviously. But as I said, he never takes it all too seriously. So maybe Manson's not a good comparison there. He's just a uh, fucking into horror, you know, he's not a Satanist or anything. He's just into horror. I can relate to that. But even his moniker of geezer, great story, really. Apparently it came about because he used to call everyone geezer. There you go. That's it. Simple. Now, we've established the four main players. So wait, let's jump back to Ozzy for a second here. A couple more notes on him that I should include in this setup. I got an audio clip here, too. Stay on track here. Right? Fuck. So, after dropping out of school, things get pretty dark for John Osborne. He later revealed that he tried to commit suicide a couple times. And I don't know if that was because of the teasing or what, or just because he's certifiably insane. And apparently, his mom was a little nuts, too. I recall some stories about him having to like shit on newspapers or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't read his book so I have to get it straight, but I've just heard excerpts here and there. However, his mom does try to get him on track. She lines him up a job at the car factory she works at, tuning car horns, but that doesn't last long. Ozzy doesn't like that. He does a slew of other shit jobs too, including working at a slaughterhouse, which he's quite good at, being a fucking psycho animal killer that he is. So, dissatisfied with the low-income jobs, not properly supporting his new growing drug habits, he turns to a life of crime and begins robbing small clothing shops and private homes. But he's fucking mental, right? So, he's, so he isn't any good at it. Here's a clip of Ozzy. Of course, you know Ozzy's voice by now, so MTV star Ozzy. Shit don't sell. Sharon! I, I come from a very uh, low-end side of town. So I, I had two choices. I'd be a bad criminal or a stupid criminal or an entertainer. Uh, and so when, my, when, I, when I didn't pay a bunch of fines, my father let me go into Winston Green for a few, few days and I, I worked because I didn't want to go back there. Yeah. Okay, so things turned a little Cape Fear here during his time in Winston Green. He first shaves his head and then armed with a needle in the slab of graphite, he places the now famous tattoo on his knuckles, O-Z-Z-Y. Ozzy, true Ozzy's born. He also inks, or graphites, the word thanks on his palm, and then a happy face on each knee, which, oh, that's just cute. Right? Around this time, he also comes to the conclusion that crime isn't for him. Maybe you should have decided that before you tattooed your knuckles, bro. But anyway, since he's really just stealing money for his pills addiction, well, I'll just fucking play in a band, man, and get my drugs for free. Doesn't have a lick of musical knowledge at this point, other than tuning the car horns with his mama. But that doesn't stop your man. He gets a PA somehow, 
probably steals it. <laughs> he hits all the clubs, telling every guitarist or musician he meets that he's a singer. Eventually, a couple of local bands buy his hook. And here are some of the first Aussie-fronted band names. You got the Prospectors. You Prospectors. You got the Black Panthers. Yikes. That's bold for a bunch of white boys, eh? And then you got the Music Machine, which turns into The Approach, which is the only decent name there. But still, nothing clicks for Ozzy. So by 1968, he places an ad in the music store that reads, Ozzy Zig requires gig. This catches the attention of a young geezer butler who at this point is playing guitar in a band called The Rare Breed. They need a singer. Ozzy Zig needs a gig. So they hook up. No tracks out there from the rare breed to go through, but they didn't last long anyway. And also around this time, mythology, we talked about earlier, were kind of disbanding. Because apparently they got busted for drugs. And like I said, they were all flatmates back in Carlisle. And they were raided by the guards. And apparently someone was storing a few briefcases of hash in their gaff. It all made the papers in the north. So subsequently the band was blacklisted and Tony and Bill decided to move back to Birmingham. Now, the story gets a little jumbled here. I've heard them say that Tony and Bill saw the Aussie Zig Requires gig flyer that connected Aussie and Geezer. And then there's another story where Aussie and Geezer are showing up at Tony's, asking him if he knows any drummers. Tony re recommends Bill. Bill says, I'll only play if Tony's in. Either way, it doesn't matter. Tony and Bill meet Geezer and Aussie. They decide to give it a go. 1968. Boom. The Big Bang, as far as this podcast is concerned. The beginning, finally. Tony, Bill, Ozzy, and Geezer, along with two other blokes, a couple of Ozzy's buddies, I think, from Birmingham. Jimmy Phillips, who plays lap steel, and another guy, they don't say his name in the book here, but another guy who's playing the saxophone. So six guys start out playing a few gigs up in the North Country, likely hooked up through Tony and Bill's old Carlisle connections from the mythology days. So, actually, here, I got some dates here. Let me just bring them up. But, does this go back to Pocatoke Blues Band? Yes, it does. Okay. So, August 24th in Carlisle. The six of them play at the county ballroom. So, that could be their first official gig together. And you got the two extra tag-ons there, but... I wonder what those two guys did. I wonder if they like started their own band afterwards and were like pissed at how big Sabbath became. After a few gigs, the Pocatuck Blues Band realized that the Saxon Slide have to go. And it sounds like Tony takes charge at this point. He says in his book that he breaks up the whole band just in order to boot the other two out and not hurt their feelings. So they immediately reform as a four-piece, creating what would remain the classic lineup for the next decade. You got Ozzy Osbourne on vocals, Tony Iommi on guitar, Geezer Butler on bass, Bill Ward on the drums. So around this time, they also rename themselves. They become Earth, which is a pretty okay name, I'd say. Earth. It's much better than Pocatoke, anyway. And Tony was asked who came up with the name. He says it was Geezer, but Geezer is quoted as saying that Earth was Bill Ward's idea. They start playing clubs as a four-piece with a much tighter sound. They even get a few gigs in London, which means bigger audiences, of course. But here's an important first in Birmingham. On September 16th, they play their first documented gig at Henry's Blues House. Now, I don't know why it was called Henry's, because it was booked and ran by a local guy named Jim Simpson, who's also an important figure in the Earth slash Black Sabbath timeline here. He soon became the first manager of Earth, so I actually pulled a, a few audio interviews here I found from him for context. I'll just let him say his piece first. It's Mr. Jim Simpson. 
I was a jazz musician for many years, and we had a hit record with a band I was managing and playing for called Locomotive, so I stopped playing and concentrated on management. We rented an upstairs room in a, a city centre pub, which was fairly tacky and just had a, a right ambience for the sort of music they were playing. The club was called Henry's Blues House. Early members there were three of what was to become known of as Black Sabbath. And, in fact, their membership numbers, two of them, membership cards were numbers four and seven or something, so they were right there at the beginning. And I got to know them socially and talking about blues, which was a, a mutually interesting topic. And one day, uh, one of them said, can we do the interval spot? Well, the interval spot those days paid the grandiose sum of five pounds. And they, I remember clearly, they said, well, instead of the five pounds, can we each have a Henry's Blues House T-shirt? As our, as our fee, and that was, the, that was the first Sabbath gig. When they were called Earth, they played lots of blues-rooted stuff from the start. There was no full official LPs released when the band was still called Earth. Just some acetate singles, and who knows who holds the rights to those, right? I'll go through the tracks I've found, give my thoughts on them here, and then, with the help of the top-tier supernaut that I've hooked up with here, brilliant Dutch guitarist named Ben, I'll actually have him play the riffs we need be for reference and discussion. Does that sound good? I urge you all to check out Ben's channel on YouTube. It's The Sterling Sound. It's T-H-E-S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G-S-O-U-N-D. Folks, this is essential Sabbath worship to check out here. Go give him some love, because Ben is a badass. He's an incredible Iomi tone chaser. He's even built his own monkey SG, and he plays through Laney's just full-on authenticity. Some borderline insane Iomi worship. I fucking love it. Like I said, we've been in touch. I've got his blessing to use his riffs on the show, so enjoy. And go watch his videos. Subscribe to his YouTube. If you're trying to learn the songs proper, he's probably the next best thing to having Tony Boy himself show you. So let's get into one of those early Earth songs here. Ben heard here riffing out the most complete song of the batch. This one's called The Rebel. Right on. So the music in this one kind of shows that they were more than a blues cover band, to my ears anyway, in the recording. In fact, all the pre-Sabbath tracks have a kind of poppy, free-flowing jazz lift to them. Kind of separates them from the blues club standards that they would have been playing a little bit earlier than that. And at least that's what I hear. I mean, sure, the Rebel isn't as memorable as the doom-ridden originals on the wax on the debut, like NIB and Black Sabbath, but I urge you to go track down the Rebel on YouTube because Ozzy fucking sings great on it too. Real pop sensibility creeps in. They do harmonies. I don't know if it's Geezer doing the harmonies or if they just brought in some session guy or something. Maybe it was Bill. Who knows? Bill's actually really great on the track too. He really shuffles in nicely. Some powerful drums, even for the shitty recording that it was. Then the other noteworthy track from this era, and this one sounds much more in tune with their evil blues feel that was to come a heavy riff-driven number called When I Came Down. I got a little bit to read here on When I Came Down. The actual song was incomplete, but 
It was a cover of sorts, a song brought to them by manager Jim Simpson. Actually, there's a bit more background on both these recordings in here, The Rebel and When I Came Down, so I'll just read out the whole thing here. In August of 1969, Earth's manager Jim Simpson suggested that the band record The Rebel, a song written by Norman Haynes of another band that he managed called Locomotive. The session for The Rebel took place at Trident Studios in London. Haynes also took part in the session, playing organ and piano. Yeah, so there you go. Another Haynes composition was called When I Came Down. This one was cut in Zilla Studios in Birmingham in October of 1969. So that was just two months between the two sessions here. There's also another infamous song called A Song for Jim, which is this flute-heavy, jazzy number, and the lads were encouraged to play that as well. Hence, they took the piss out of Jim and called it A Song for Jim. So this is when they really start honing in and writing their own material. If you pick up this episode and you're like, shit, that's a lot of blabbing about nothing going on there. Fuck this. I'm not going to subscribe. It's going to get good fast, man. Don't worry. 1970 brings two iconic albums back to back. And if you made it through this episode, well, then let me know. Leave me a review on iTunes. It only takes a second, and it makes me feel less alone. So, till next time, keep on. Bug blast all of you. <laughs>